I, I'm still stunned by how many opportunities I had by just by just proclaiming to have just a little bit of knowledge about something. I, I raised my hand, basically. You know, like I know business raising my hand. <laughs> yeah, I know that. It's that's Ernest Coe, CEO of Proofgeist, a software firm dedicated to improving your experience with technology. Ernest shares his career journey on this episode of the Leadership Backstory. We learn about what it was like to immigrate to the United States as a teen and how his career started in teaching, then pivoted to software development before landing him as the CEO of Proofgeist. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. Brendan Schneider and I learned a lot and we know you will too. So let's get started. Ernest Coe, welcome to the backstory. You know, Brendan, Ernest and I have known each other for a, a long time. Like, I think it goes back to 2004, maybe 2003, maybe even earlier than that. I can't remember oh. the exact year. And I've always been just, I've always admired him in, 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 for, for a number of reasons. One, he's just incredibly bright. So I'm going to make you feel a little embarrassed here for a second, <laughs> Ernest. Um, but he's just got such an interesting story, you know, uh, coming to the coming to the United States at age 14, you know, working in a school, pivoting to, you know, into the software space to today where he's the CEO of Proofgeist. And Ernest, like, I am just fascinated by your backstory. And, and I was telling Brennan about it too. I think he's yeah. equally fa fascinated as well. You know, first off, welcome to the show. So I should probably do that up front. It's hard, especially when you're and, doing a friend, it's like, we're, it's like, we're just like a normal conversation, but yeah, welcome, yeah. welcome to the backstory, my friend. Hey, thanks guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ernest, you know, I don't want, I don't want to take away your thunder, right? I really would like for you to kind of trace, uh, retrace your steps for us, but take us all the way back. Like in, you said you were 14 when you came here from Malaysia, correct? That's right. Malaysia. What was that experience like? Because that's that's an interesting age to to move to a new country. Yeah, well, um, I mean, there are a lot of cliches about the kind of kind of story, right? It's it's um, culture shock, all that good stuff, and all that's true. But I think I think I just wasn't ready for how different things were, you know, and it's. It's a sum total of all the things that are different, right? It's not just language is different or speak funny or, hey, they do school weird here or they don't know math or, I mean, they do know math, but you know, <laughs> when you're 14, like, you know, you think you're hot, hot shit and all that. Oh, by the way, what are ground rules here? Can I, can I use uh, four letter words and stuff? Oh, yeah, there, there's no yeah, ground okay. rules. Yeah. Mm, cool. yeah. <laughs> now, now I'm totally at home. <laughs> yeah, now you're at home. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was all of them. It was all of that, right? I mean, I <clears throat> had no, had no friends, had no, but really nothing. I mean, here's the odd thing. I mean, my 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 dad was a, a mining engineer, <clears throat> so he built his career in Malaysia um, as somebody who would go into mines. And back in the day, it was tin mines and aluminum mines and gold mines and you name it, you know. So this is this is right before. Um, a concern for the environment was sort of a thing, right? And yeah. so living was the way the whole the world economy ran. We were, we were, you know, incredibly proud of all of that, but we lived in mines. I mean, we were pretty isolated to begin with. <clears throat> so we would go into these places where that clear cut, like <clears throat> all these jungles and you know rainforests and strip, like basically cut out everything, 
brought in dredges and huge equipment and you name it and just kind of stripped everything to its core, right? So I lived in that environment. You, you lived there? I, oh, you lived oh there. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. so they, they'll come in, they'll set up a whole company thing, right? You have your engineers on the hill, your workers like lower down the hill, and then you have like a support staff like way, way, way down the hill. And so we were kind of up the hill, but not so far up the hill that we thought we were big people, but you know, up enough that you thought, yeah, hey, you, you, you kind of made it, right, in, in this world. And what a social status, right? Like, depending where you live on the, like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh no, it, it was a thing. Crazy. It was very subtle, but it was very yeah. much a thing. Sure. And and with Malaysia, obviously, you know, it's, it's a multiracial so country with lots of racial sort of complexities and, and political challenges. But these mines were originally owned by the Brits and, you know, and foreigners, quote unquote, right? So... We worked for the man, literally the man, you know, what's his name? I still remember his name, Mr. Chambers or whatever his name is, like the uh, head, head boss. And yeah, from time to time, I would take my bike and I'd ride out to where the dredges were. And these were like huge, like, huge machines. Like you could stand in the huge dinosaurs and they make these noises. Like horn, like as if you're living like in Jurassic Park with this all metal machines here. Then you see all the tailings that are digging in the earth and you spit it out from the back and it was, it was like, it was like a movie set. So I went from that world, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we, we kind of split time between the city and, and the mines, but I went from that world to saying, we got to get out of here. And so it was either Australia or Florida, and Florida won. But the it, contrast though, right? To yeah. go from, you know, fairly rural, you know, environment to, I mean, you, you settled in Jacksonville, right? Yeah, I settled in Jacksonville. The thing is, I think the thing I want to stress is it's not, for a lot of, I think, immigrants of my generation, and maybe even ever, um, in some ways, I felt like we were oddly much more, much more, what's the word, worldly than and the people that we immigrated, the, than the community we immigrated into. Right? Because, I mean, sure. you imagine yeah. that, my, our, my perspective was, there's this whole big world out there, you got companies from, you know, all the way across the world coming in and building things and we're part of the world economy. We're digging shit out of the ground and making the things that, you know, that the Americans use for whatever, you know, what the Brits use or Australians use. And um, my, my dad went to school in, in London and so he came back with his degree and that's how he got into the whole mining industry and all that. And he was a chemical engineer, geologist. Um, so, I mean, I had a very sort of worldly international perspective. Right. I mean, Malaysia was a fairly small country. You could drive five hours and be in a different country. Right. You spoke six different languages normally. And that's that's not because you were smart. It's because you had to go, like, order food down the stall, right? It's not, <laughs> right. It's not anything right. special, right? So we, we had all these ideas of what it means to be to be sort of connected in the world. And I very much felt like when I came here, um, it, was, it, was, it was whiplash. I almost felt like I came to a third world country and, and the other way around. But was treated like a third world, right? So that's the contrast. Yeah. You know, like I didn't know anything about this world, but man, it's kind of shitty to be in. But uh, also really rural, and in a lot of ways, very insular was sort of the the from a cultural perspective, was sort of the thing that comes to mind. How did you navigate that? Badly, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was fourteen, man. I, go ahead. Brian. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, what kind of school were you in in Malaysia? If you were bouncing back, like yeah. as a company school at the site and then city and a little bit tutors? Yeah. So my dad was an engineer. So we were fairly comfortable. And so we had a house in the city. And eventually we moved, my, my mom and I and my brother moved to KL and Ipo later. And those are very big cities, right? And we went to school in sort of the, the best public schools they had there. Uh, Methodist, Bo Methodist Boys School was my first public elementary school with hundreds of kids. Yeah, that kind of thing. So we had we had a very standard sort of British inflected formal education. Um, even younger, with obviously you know private um, kindergarten and stuff like that. I mean, nothing nothing super fancy, but. I was taught by nuns for a little while. It was kind of funny, <clears throat> you know. So, this whole idea that that um, there's this like Western education system that's been blended into something more local, post post independence, you know, that's certainly in my upbringing, right? And then you you arrived here in high school, and I know you went to a like a really competitive high school in Jacksonville, right? Yeah. So I I, I wound up through. A variety of connections and people giving us advice. You know, we had a small company network, and the um, uh, my father's um, boss at the time, um, the Nolans of Newer, they they tried to take care of us. I mean, I, I was quite um, I'm still very grateful for sort of the attention they gave to my family. But so they they pushed us this sort of guided us, say you want to go to this school, you want to try to get into this school, and we wound up. Getting into Stanton, which is sort of the uh, college prep school here uh, in Jacks, <clears throat> and and that set. I mean, it's interesting because that experience there, you know, as far as I know, and you know, take us down the path, has, of course, as you see it. But like that, from there, you went up to Wesleyan University. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, Random. fast forwarding at, uh, through Wesleyan, you know, it's always been interesting to me as you you've. You're, you're this accomplished software developer, architect, CEO, but you didn't start no. in software. In fact, you, you started about as far away from software <laughs> as you could possibly start. I mean, you were you were an educator first, first and foremost, right? I was a very bad educator. But I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I'm glad I'm not in education any longer. God bless those people. <laughs> to be clear, yeah. yeah I mean. Look, I mean, I, 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 my high school path was very much, and I wish I knew you back then, right, Peter? I mean, I had no idea what it means to like, succeed in school, right? We had a script in our head. I had a script in my head about what it means to get into the best schools. And that's why you came here, right? You want to go to the best right. schools in the world. You want to go to the Harvards right. and whatnot. Right. So that, that was what, that was sort of the, um, the, the idea that I, I had embraced. Whether or not that was actually imposed on me, I, I don't actually know anymore. I like I like to tell a story that my mom has all my, my parents have all these expectations of me. And to some degree that's true, but I had huge expectations of myself. Most of that was sort of inane, like things like you kinda of adopt as a youth because you had no better ideas to kinda of fill in your head, right? So you have yeah. to go to an Ivy League school and all that. So I worked my ass off, um, but doing all the dumb things, I just a lot of quantity and not a lot of quality. I could no, I could I knew how to study in, in, the, in the classical sense. I, I, I could read, I could write, I could memorize. I was very good at memorizing. I grew up in the system that memorization was important. So I could cram. Cramming was like my thing. Right? Um, um, 
And so I, I just, I, it was just grinding, really. <laughs> and I, I went to school that sort of said, hey, if you want to grind, grind ahead. You know, so I took AP classes, IB classes. It was right. like, it was crazy. I was taking IB and AP exams at the same time. I had a battery of things, you know, that I was going wow. through. Wow. It was just insane. It's insane. Stress levels through the roof. Um, and all that had very little social life. And I was a re- very maladjusted, socially awkward sort of geek, you know, in so, school. So did you lose your mind when you went to Westland? I mean, <laughs> I lost my mind, man. So, I mean, this is the thing. People think, wow, you were you, you uh, so, you know, like proactive yeah. and, and foresighted to go to this like liberal arts, liberal school. Like, I had no idea. I chose Wesleyan because I thought it was a nice conservative, like Christian school. Man, that's, that's so far from right. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's completely opposite. I mean, that's, that's not a hundred percent true. I mean, I, I did visit, and I, I had, had. I mean, I just wanted to get out of town. You know, I wanted something right. completely different. And so, um, uh, it 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 felt like this place where I could sort of reinvent myself. Right. I mean, that was sort of the the Same. only thing that mattered to me at that point. Like, I just needed to get out of this whole high school nonsense. I need to go figure things out. And so, hey, you know, if they're going to give me some grants and has some financial aid, fine, you know, let's do it. That was it, you know? I, I you went there and there. Yeah, well, wh- this is the thing, Brandon. I had to tell my mom that Wesleyan was the place I wanted to go to because they had a three-year, two-year program with Columbia. Columbia was an Ivy League school, right? right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, you can go there because that was like, hey, you got to be an engineer, you got to be a, yeah. uh, whatever. So they had this three-two program, engineering pro- engineering program that, yeah. that's with Wesleyan. So the idea is that you get, get both degrees, you do three years at West and two years at, at Columbia, and you come out with being a little engineer. It's like, yeah, so I sold them this idea. and went there when I took a couple of physics classes, and I hated it. Fucking hated it. <laughs> I thought I was good at it, and then I wasn't. You know? Yeah. Oh man! Then and then I said, "I'm done. I'm just going to read history and read philosophy and and go do uh, that." So that's what I did. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and so, how did you get into teaching? Like, talk. I I, I don't even think I know that story. How did you become a teacher? Same way I did everything. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no plan. All my yeah. friends were getting jobs at Anderson Consulting back then, mm-hmm. right before I was Accenture and. You know Deloitte. And I was like, I don't and, and investment banking shit. I mean, people like people like together. I mean, all these kids that I went to, to school with, they were together. I was not together. I I mean, I barely skated through high. I mean, college basically. I did okay, but I had no plan. I had no idea what was after. So, yeah, my my roommate, my best friend at that time, Alex Fong. Um, he had a plan. It's like, you know, I'm going to go to law school eventually. He was super, super smart. And, but uh, I'm going to start teaching first, you know, and kind of figure things out. And he got his job at Loomis Chafee teaching philosophy because he was a philosopher major. And he called me up the day he got the job. said, you know, the interview for a history and Chinese language teacher, you know a little of both, right? So he's like, yeah, I got nothing better to do. So I applied. <laughs> I applied. I literally drove the 20 minutes down the street. I bought a suit at like oh, Kmart or something. I was Love like, it. it was like, oh my gosh, I still remember the shoes I bought. Like, I was so uncomfortable. I couldn't barely hobble through, you know, Founders Hall and all that. And I don't know why they did, but Alice, Alice Baxter, you know, bless her soul. She, she was my first boss and she gave me that job um, right out of school. So amazing. And that job actually, I mean, that was, 
foundational in a lot of ways to the rest of your career. Yeah. Foundational. Talk about that. Oh boy. Where do I start? Um, Oh God, I was such a mess, Peter. I mean, I think yeah. you're. I think you're a little hard on yourself. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, you think you hear a lot of things about yourself, and you think you're great. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not. I don't think I'm being, um, you know, unfairly self-deprecating. I just, I just know that when I first got onto campus and started teaching, I was surrounded by this world I had no access to. You know, kids were driving up in cars, like seniors were driving up in cars day day in boarding school, right? That I couldn't fathom how I would afford after 20 years working at school. Yeah. And so it was all this status thing. It was it was not like overtly mean or anything. That Limus is a fantastic school, right? I mean, it's it's a place where really cool people go and get an amazing education that they could never get elsewhere. I I had no idea what that experience is like. I mean, you go to Wesleyan, right? And, and the, the cool thing about Wesleyan is that people like pur- purposefully, what's the word, dumb themselves, dumb, dumb themselves down socially, so to speak, right? I mean, it's, you're all like bohemian and hippie and, and you can't tell status very easily until you like go home for a break and all that. But you know, people throw beat up cars and, it was very much very down to earth and and very quote real and, and all that, right. So you had this perception of the kind of uh, reality that was sort of disconnected from the actual reality, you know, socially that, that people came from, which was very cool, right. So it was a very safe space to to be very equal and democratic and do all kinds of crazy things. You were equally crazy with like the rich kids. You didn't really know. Sometimes you knew, but really, I mean, it wasn't very overt. Once I started teaching, I mean, that whole world just like snapped into focus. Man. It was very much class, it was very much status. And you were Were very you looking at that through the lens of, you know, uh, an immigrant uh, who's been in the country at that point, what, eight years? So I have a little bit of that. Yeah. I'm a little yeah. bit of that. I mean, I... And while you were there, I mean, was that where you got your roots in software? I I was always hacking, goofing around on computers all my life. You know that that's one thing my parents. Uh, it was really a, a huge gift they 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 gave me when I was young. Um, <clears throat> my dad um, started to work with computers, and so we always was close to computers. And got my hands on the Apple IIe. My my mom would send me to like this after school thing where I could go like learn how to code. But it wasn't like serious coding. It was like, hey, you know, go learn Roll and Logo and stuff like that. And I was really hungry, right? And I, I was playing with databases. I was doing all kinds of things. And I always had a lot of access to, to personal computers, which was a very cool thing. Um, and in high school, I started building BBSs. So that, that was my thing. I was like, you know, connect, connected to, to the modem and make the awful sound and set up little networks. <laughs> So Ernest, when you were at uh, Loomis, that's where you met uh, Kevin McAllister, who went on. He, he went on to found uh, in residence with. Is that right? Yeah. So so connecting the computer stuff, right? So I, I was always into computers. And at Wesleyan, I, I mean, when I wasn't like trying to be a philosopher or reading like B Station history, 
I basically just hacked around, you know, we, I remember the early, what was it? We had, we, it was HTTP 0.9, Team Burns Lead, first web server pre-release that just come out. It'd been out for a while, but it was a publicly release. And we grabbed it, downloaded it, and tried to install it on the SunSpark um, works, um, station that we stole right. from, like, the physics department. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, we. we so Damn. I mean, I, I was volunteering. I was. I had like, some work study at the um, <clears throat> at the um, at the, at SN's IT help desk person. And so there was a bunch of us who were just like crazy, like IT hackers. No, not hackers in the bad sense, but we were just like goofing around. You know, we just had time on our hands and wanted to do stuff. So we were just ripping apart computers and putting them together and like downloading shit and trying things out. And we wanted to set up this website, this web server. So it was HTTP 0.9. I remember downloading it, and this guy, a uh, friend of mine, so kind of a senior at, at Wesley, and he was showing me the ropes. Like, hey, this is how you get in the command line. This is how you tell all this stuff. This is how you set up Perl script. And I, I was freaking cooked, you know. So, so I did that, and it was no job, right? I mean, you couldn't be like a webmaster. Like, <laughs> no, that existed. Right? It was it was very much early days of networking, and so. That's always that always stayed with me, and I always thought it was cool, and 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 did not parlay that into something something bigger, uh, because it was just it wasn't clear to me what what that looked like, right? And obviously, I was just not that together. So anyway, at, at Loomis, I just kind of offered to help around. I was like, hey, you know, I know how to do this web stuff, so kind of build websites for the missions department. And I was hacking around things, doing support, and they would start pulling me into these conversations about policy and about <clears throat> and about. What should we buy? Like dumb, dumb debates that people still have today. Like, should we be a Mac school or PC school? You know, like we were building like a language lab, lab that year. So I was a language teacher with like technical chops. So I would get all these questions about which which language lab hardware should we be investing in? What software should we buy? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just making shit up. So it's good. I, I just, I did my kind of quote. How old were you at this point? Like 22? I was 22. <laughs> like, you know, barely 22. Like, I'm fresh out yeah. of school, you know? And, and, and what do they say? That the male brain doesn't fully form until 25? Is it something like that? Or... Something like that, right? <laughs> I was but, thinking 50. But... <laughs> yeah, right. But, yeah. I, I'm still stunned by how many opportunities I had by just, by just proclaiming to have just a little bit of knowledge about yeah, something. You raised your hand. I, yeah. I raised my hand, basically. Yeah. I'm like, I know business raising my hand. <laughs> yeah, I know that. It's, it's like, it's a school ethos. Right? I mean, you were just one chapter ahead of the kids, basically. And so I was, I felt like I was one chapter ahead of, yeah. <laughs> you know, people um, on the ground. I mean, so I wanted to help, you know, and did that. And so that's how I, I that's how I met Kevin. <clears throat> so Kevin had a, um, Kevin was the uh, tech director at, or well, coordinator then and became director later, but at, at Loomis. And uh, I had a problem I needed to solve. I, I, was, I had volunteered to be the debate coach. That was one of my, not volunteered, that was one of my jobs then, because I was a debater in high school. And uh, that year, Loomis was hosting like this mega multi school major tournament. Like we were the hosts. I'd never done anything like this in my life. I didn't know how to do it. I was like, so I thought, what what do I need to make this go? So, yeah, I need a database. This is what I need. I need this. I need a scheduling program. 
So I, I cast it around. I asked, asked Kevin, Kevin and said, hey, you know, you do this database thing. Yeah. yeah. Can I get a copy of FileMaker? And maybe I'll just build like this scheduling database thing. So he gave me the software. Like literally back then, it was literally software in our disk yeah. that you could install. So I did that. Didn't work. Didn't know what I was doing. Failed. The, the whole tournament was so badly run that buses were running back home after 10 p.m. at night. And it was a freaking disaster. It was a freaking nightmare. I thought I was going to be fired. It was, it was, it was, you weren't, though. I, <laughs> I wasn't. No, that's good. Yeah. Alice Baxter looked at me and said, I'm just a test disc. You know, if you need help, you should ask. You know. That's a good lesson, right? Yeah. So how did you get, so you and Kevin, like, how did you start selling software? I mean, because you were both at <clears throat> Loomis and I, it started, I mean, it was kind of a side hustle while you were there, right? We, I, I was about to go to law school and Kevin, so I'd done three years at Loomis. I was like 25 um, and it was clearly time for chapter two or whatever of my career. Still didn't know what I was going to do, and just really made sense that, yeah, I can write, I can think. Maybe law school is the the, the, the natural choice, you know. It, it wasn't completely unfounded. It's like, hey, you know, I like this tech stuff. Maybe there's a place for IP law or international tech law, or something like that. My background experience it could be pretty cool. So that's that's where I was headed. You know, got accepted a bunch of places in UConn, and I was gonna, you know, like I was really gonna do it. Yeah, I was gonna go to law school. <clears throat> then Kevin sort of said, hey, you know, I'm about to leave Lumens. I got this thing, I got this database thing. I think you can make a go at it. You know, I'm going to make the company. Um, I need a number two. You know, would you come and do this with me? And, and I said, yeah, what is it? Are we partners? He said, yeah, we're partners. Let's do it 50-50. And so, you know, we got a friend and we hammered out a operating agreement and that was. You know, ostensibly Kevin was you know, leader, and I was going to help him, like, build a company. And I, said, I remember saying to him then, you know, Kevin, I'm, I'm not, you know, my thing is, is like, in, in methodologies and, and process. Like, I, I want to build a thing. I'm not I'm not a salesperson. I'm not, like, I'm not the visionary. I, I, I'm, I'm barely, like, a coder, if you will, or anything like that, you know. I'm not going to make the product, but I'm going to make the company, you know, help build it, so... If you do that part and I'll do this part, I'm in, you know. What have I got to lose? Sorry, I'm just going to law school. So, yeah. So, I, I ditched law school and started the company with Kevin. Yeah, talk, us about, talk, talk about that. I mean, in the early days, you you mm -hmm. built up quite a following right out, of the, right out of the gate, it seems. It was crazy times, man. I mean, it was, it was kind of stunning how all that kind of came together because we had, we were literally in, you know, Kevin's house and then Kevin's basement for like a couple of months and then we moved into Hartford and I had an apartment in Hartford and it was just and we were in my apartment and just kind of coding out of it and Charlie Bailey joined us and we were three and Kevin was running around the country you know literally going from school to school you know talking about mission software and the database we built right because you build software for schools for independent schools in particular independent schools in particular yeah yeah, so I mean, admissions and registration stuff, you know, like really basic records management and some basic business process, biz ops kinds of stuff. But back then, you know, the alternative was 
pretty meager, right? It was either crappy DOS-based stuff or really primitive spreadsheets or, or yeah, God knows. Paper files. Paper files, right. you know, DBS. Yeah, exactly. Paper files. Yeah. So I mean, we had a fairly rich UI out of the box just because it was found in Clara's, you know, and easy to use and networked and shareable. And so that was, it was a winning kind of combination. That was big at the time. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And those schools had nothing, right? Those schools were still note cards and paper. Right. You know, labels were still being typed out. Yeah, stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> for the tabs on the folders, right? For the tabs I'm on the, the admission files, yeah. That was such a huge feature of that software to be able to like reproduce like the analog artifacts that people had because like, they couldn't get rid of those file cabinets. Yeah. yeah. So software was about building like systems to make those filing things easier, you know? It was just so Some weird. Some still can, Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how long has that been? Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, because I, I remember because we I'm looking at your timeline. We started teaching at the same time, and I felt the same. I was about maybe a week ahead of the kids, maybe a day ahead of the kids, yeah. and then got into tech as well. And it was like the wild west. Schools didn't know. Looking to young people who were, you know, I consider myself a geek as a term of endearment, and uh, yeah, raised my hand in the same thing. And I, it was the wild west. It was crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, had we had we had just a little bit more guidance on how to do this right, we'd be like killing it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but we, we actually knew more than the people that were we were reporting to. Yeah, it's a it's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? And I think we had more <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> not enough wisdom. Is it not a, zero wisdom? Hundred percent zero wisdom. Yeah. But there was some knowledge there. That was it. There was a lot of knowledge. Yeah, that was it. So at its peak, like well, before, you know, you, you were there through 2006, right? Yeah. That was your last year. I mean, it's, 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 it's peak. You had, and Kevin had built a company that had, <clears throat> I don't know, what, 15, 20 employees, hundreds of school yeah, customers. A couple hundred. Yeah. It was schools. It was something. Yeah. A couple yeah. of merchants, a couple of acquisitions, I mean, or acquisitions in the pipeline. I mean, it was, it was yeah. a big deal. Yeah. We had a building. We were in Northampton with, yeah. Uh, Steve Ritchie, uh, my partner now, one of my partners now, but was one of the early partners here at, uh, at Residence when we started with Kevin, uh, came on and then gave us a basically a kick in the pants financially and capitalized some some things that we could do. So we were, I wouldn't say we were living the dream, but it was it was definitely a sense that we were on this tech trajectory. Right, and there were a few right. companies around us at that time. It was like with Hill, it was yeah. in Resonance, and you know we were definitely part of that little little squad of people trying to make it there. Yeah, yeah. And I think I so I joined the firm back in '05. I think mm-hmm. I think that was the year I was there for a couple of years. My wife worked there for a couple of yeah. years, and so that's you know where we really got to know each other. You know, a few years before that, and then I, I'll never forget like '06 came around, and then all of a sudden that it kind of felt like the party was over. Like something, you know, there was a split between you and Kevin and you ultimately left and went and started Proof. And, you know, we don't necessarily need to get into the details of that per se, but I'm curious about, you know, you you learned a lot when you were at Resonance and Resonance and then seems like made some decisions about where you wanted to take a company. And, it, you know, Kevin had other ideas, I imagine. And you ultimately decided to pursue your interests. Like talk me through that period of 
of, of, of your life? Like, how did you gain clarity around thinking, maybe I need to, to reimagine myself? Those were really hard. Um, those are really hard time, I think. And, and I think in retrospect, I didn't have the emotional tools or, you know, the psychological, um, training, if you will, or experience to really handle. Well, what did you it? say? Wisdom? Like yeah, maybe wisdom. the wisdom wasn't there yet. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I don't want to get deep into it. I think if Kevin were here, I think a very friendly, you know, kind of conversation about what happened and reminisce a little bit because we had a lot of good times. Um, yeah. But you built something really was, cool. Yeah, we built something pretty cool. And 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 IR went to ex exit in a really awesome way and, you know, congrats to them. Um and, and Kevin but at, at that time, at, at 2006, you know, we were just faced with kind of a leadership crisis. You know, we all felt like nobody was happy. The company was stressed. and it, it, We were financially trying to go and grow, and there was, you know, lots of disagreements about how to do that and which was the better path. So it was, it was not just operationally, you know, the, it was not just about leadership, but it was all kind of encoded and you know, kind of all wrapped up in one. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was like we had sort of a, this this stuff happens all the time now, right? And in retrospect, like companies reach an inflection point. It's usually right. a question of growth or a question of direction, and or you have key employees that really want something to change, and then it, it causes this, um, you know, causes this crisis, if you will, of, of this existential crisis in the company. So that that was us. You know, we were really trying to f figure out who we are, what we wanted to do, and how we wanted to do it, and who we wanted to do it with, and we couldn't come to agreement on any of those things. Um. So I, I don't know if I handled it really well, but but I think it was clear at that time that it was. A bunch of us who were in the founding team of the company, you know, the key engineers, you know, and me and Steve, and then it was Kevin and, you know, a couple others on, quote, unquote, the other side. And there was some deep we, disagreements there, but I don't want to get into that. You know, in retrospect, it's not that important. Yeah. But go ahead. No, but there are lessons there, right? What did you take from the other side of that? I mean, how did that shape who you are and what you ultimately went on to do? Maybe and maybe you didn't even realize it at the time. Like, what are you realizing now? I mean, because you, you're, you're. It's fascinating to hear that you feel like maybe you didn't handle it as well as you possibly could. Like, how would you do, how would you approach that differently now, based on all the years' experience? I always imagined that what you need to start a company and be successful. I mean, when, before I joined IR, was some knowledge, some capabilities, some technical skills, and, and maybe some management skills, right? Okay. So like management and know-how, you know, and maybe some, and, and and maybe a sense of entrepreneurship, right? Like the willingness to take some risk. That was that's all you need. I'll say very clearly now that I, I learned very quickly that those things are not enough. I mean, what makes a company a company? Well, people, duh. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you can always be a company of one. That's cool. Lots of ways to do that these days, much more than ever, right? But, but we were trying to be a company where we needed, obviously, people, you know, and 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 keeping people together and 
the leadership skills that are required to do that, um, they don't teach that, right? At least yeah. I, I didn't go to a school that taught that, if you will. Yeah. Or I, I didn't know that that was something that was the thing you had to learn. You know, you always kind of thought in your head it was like a natural kind of capability. You either leader or you're not. Like you had leadership right. qualities, so you had not. Right. Right. And I just realized, oh, that's yeah. wrong. You know. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I believe that people have a propensity for it, but I still think you have to learn. I, I think even yeah. at least from my experience now, yeah, yeah. maybe having a little bit of wisdom. Even if I read stuff now and try to synthesize it, it doesn't make sense until I can actually do it. Right. Because I've not found real life to be like a book. Yeah. Because you're dealing with personalities and emotions and stuff. They, they yeah. don't teach that for sure. The mess, the messiness of life, right? Nothing is oh, nothing gosh, is yeah. easy. It's not black. It's not white. It's typically in that gray area. And it's hard. Uh-huh. Sometimes you just don't know you know, what to do when there, there are no clear answers. But I'm curious. So you went off then to f- found proof with, with your uh, uh, partner, Steve Ritchie. How'd... What did you imagine proof to be? Because it feels like you've gone through a couple of iterations, and I'm curious about the journey that that proof has has taken over the years. Because you you immediately jumped into school software, right? We immediately jumped jumped into school software, and that was the place that we knew, and you know we were comfortable in. And and, and frankly, it was it, I think it was still it still hadn't peaked, if you will, you know, in terms of what yeah. we were trying to do. Right. Um, but we had a, we had a technical vision that was quite different than IR. What we wanted to do was to be like a little SAP for for schools, essentially, right? Because uh, we, we looked at the space and we thought, hey, you know, I mean, all these big companies had, all these big enterprises had enterprise software and all the little guys had like shitty software. What if we could create a category called like small enterprise and start with the education world? And kind of sell this idea that hey, you can be like the big boys, but you need a different way of kind of thinking about your software systems as a as a unified whole and as an integrated business operating system. So that that was the idea, um, um, and I still kind of like the idea. It's just that we we were so under undercapitalized, right? And so you know, and that that was one very important lesson I learned. You know, yet no customers because we we had a non-compete. We basically said to IR, "Fine, we're gonna go. You take all the clients. We'll take our team." Right. So that was the separation. Um, probably wasn't very smart in retrospect, right, from a business standpoint. <laughs> yeah, because that stuff that stuff is hard to build. I mean, the client client base and existing business and recurring revenue. I mean, this stuff takes time for for ramp up and. Man, yeah, all these mistakes you make, right? Yeah. So that, but, but then you started to move away from schools. Yeah. It, it, as a core business, anyway. As a core business. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, we spent a lot of time building software. So it became very clear that we were much better at the ideas and how you build software and customize them than actually running a business without selling software and supporting them, right? And I'm being a little bit cheeky, but it, w- it was very clear that we were, we were, there were a lot of headwinds for us, and if we wanted to be uh, super competitive with sort of the emerging, um, you know, people coming down market and others were trying and, and new stuff that was coming on from from other platforms, like a lot of the web stuff that we 
we were running into that we we needed to get really serious about capitalizing our investment. Like we needed engineers, we needed, we're adding features faster, we needed a sales team, we needed all these things, right? And we we didn't have the runway to really do that without going out and knocking on VC doors or investment doors and you know and, and getting bigger more quickly. <clears throat> um, so I mean we kind of looked around and said, well what what do we have? Well we have capability. We have we know how consulting expertise. So it's so basically we kind of pivoted from software as product to software as service. Right. So we we went from um the product company into an agency. And that's been the pivot that we've been making. My heart is still in product, but it was just it, I we were just trying to boil the ocean to be competitive and, and I realized that that was a not a winning strategy. So, so we've been engineering this shift, you know, since. And and then uh, in 2021, you there was an acquisition, correct? Uh, we we bought a um, we bought a hosting company, an infrastructure hosting company, um, and then we had a merger. We we put together two other companies, uh, Foxtail and, and Guys Interactive. In our little space, you know, it's a filmmaker space, not Clara's space. So we basically bought together three companies and kind of lashed them together. Um, and that's sort of the second, you know, phase two of the master plan, if you will, right? So it was like, all right, we're going to engineer sh shift from product to services. Now we have to grow. Uh, we have to kind of define ourselves as the leading services uh, team and, and full service shop. Um, within our market, and how do you go about doing that? So, so that was like, it's kind of what we did. So, fast forward to today, you've got a you know pretty firm position, and it sounds like a clear clear vision of what Proofgeist is is ultimately what it is today, and what it what it will be tomorrow. For now, I mean, yeah, I mean things can change, right? But I mean, I I always imagine, I I always imagine as having the flexibility of um, expanding in different ways or adding things in different ways. So um, this is this is sort of a a thing that I have to be careful about as a leader because aspirationally, I, I kind of want to like all the things. <laughs> I want to see our brand. <laughs> like, you're Samsung. Who cares what you do? <laughs> you're, you're, right. you're electronics. <laughs> you're in theater. Why are you in theater? I don't know. Samsung. They can do what they want, right? So, yeah, so right. you always have this. You always you always have this idea. You, t you have this sort of aspirational idea of, of being fully horizontal, kind of idea. But you know, um, practically, it's not it's not that. And practically, we have a, a short term way of really becoming um, what we're known for, which is this custom software development agency um, that really helps businesses and, and big and small and some very, very big ones do some amazing things and changing the way they work, right? So it's really about building core business capabilities to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. So so the difference between us and buying so off-the-shelf ERP is that if you buy off-the-shelf ERP, then you become off-the-shelf, right? So you become like everything that everybody else does the same way. So how do you, how do you distinguish yourself? Well, you find your core value proposition and try to build a system around it. So we're, we're that team that helps people do that, both at the team level and organization level and enterprise level. And that, that will be our core brand for a while, right? That'll be a core. 
Colin Coward. Yeah. Ernest, as you think about the future, do you, you said you kind of code, but I'm interested, are you at the strategic level, at the code level? Do you go back and forth? Do you prefer one over the other? My happy place is in code, um, in that I love making things. I mean, that's my, uh -huh. yeah. Like I, I still crave finding a week or two to just like go build a thing. Some of the happiest times I have is like just telling telling the team, "Hey, I'm I'm going to take a week. I'm just going to hack." And I I've taken five days. I took five days once a couple of years ago, where I just went and built a bunch of stuff in Slack. You know, on Slack, you know, grabbed APIs, built some automations, built a bot. You know, um, that talk to my databases and do all this stuff. God, I love doing that kind of stuff. I don't do much of that these days. That's that's not where I'm needed. So, so I code, but a different way. Like I'm building systems for the team, right? And a lot of that is not uh, like interesting. actual code, but code in the same kind of way, right? It's about it's about it's cultural code, it's systemic code, it's process code. But hopefully, one day it'll be actual code. You now that you can write it, you know, Ernest, you've had such an interesting. I mean, I'm just fascinated by your backstory, and I'm glad that you're you're on the show here telling t t telling us about it. Because you know, you, you think about coming to this country at 14, you know, immediately stepping into a, like and, and you. I think you undersold Stanton. I mean, it is considered to be one of the best high schools in the country. Correct. I mean, it's it has a good reputation. Yeah. I mean, we we yeah. produce some pretty cool people. It, it's yeah. com competitive, right? So you you literally <laughs> arrive in this country, you're thrown in this competitive environment, and you go up to Westland, you lose your mind. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Not, and I didn't have to take drugs. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You just like, you know, it was able to tap into all these different experiences. And, you know, you, you taught, you founded a company, you built products, you had a separation, you founded another company that's been through multiple iterations. Like, there have been a lot of twists and turns along the way, and it it does make me wonder, like, if you could do it all over again, would this be the path that, would you take the same path again, or would you tr try to do something different? That's such a good question. Um, I don't think I would have been happy not trying to just do something that I would, that I feel alive doing. Right, I, mean, I think that's been the core. I mean, I think as twisty and windy as things have been, I've always felt, and as stressful as things have been, and sometimes they were really dark and, and bleak, but I always felt like I had this power or, you know, opportunity, if you will, to kind of shape things and to just nudge the universe just a slightly different way than I'm seeing it. Right? Like the status quo is not good enough, so I'm going to do something about it. And that I don't think I I would have done. I don't think I would have been happy doing anything differently, if you will. Right? I couldn't I couldn't work for a big company. I couldn't I couldn't do. I I needed to do this this way. I needed to be. I needed it to be messy, to be crazy, and to learn from it. Because um, I felt alive doing. It. Like I was figuring things out, wrestling with it. You know, so would I do something differently? Had I the benefit of hindsight and knowledge? Absolutely. You know, but the idea that, hey, go start something, ship it, iterate, and do it a bunch of times again, maybe you'll fail. Nah, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Awesome. 
Artist, this has been great, man. Where do you want people to find more about you? Where can they where can they go check you out? I was gonna say Twitter, but oh my god, I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's still there. It's As we record, there. it's still there. Still there. Yeah. You could apply yeah. to be CEO, by the way. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't think I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can you can find me on Twitter I've, uh, and uh, and from there you can find a Mastodon account um, follow.proofguys.com if you want to look at it. Yeah. Uh, they can always drop me an email. I'm at ernest.co at proofguys.com. Awesome. Yeah. Ernest Co, CEO of Proof, Proof Guys, thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing a very personal story. I mean, uh, it, uh, this was a fascinating you know, journey you've taken, and I'm glad we've had a chance to share it. I appreciate it, guys. Good thanks, thanks Ernest. Again. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host The Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.